Hello everyone, and welcome to the Quorum Podcast. This is where academic medicine meets remote, austere, and resource-limited areas. Welcome back to the program. This is Averical Kelly. This week, I am with Brian Foy. Brian is doing a lot of training in Kenya. He and I go way back. We met about 15 years ago. Brian, welcome to the program. Uh, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, so, uh, retired out of the Marine Corps, I was in uh, a force reconnaissance unit, uh, did 22 years there. And while I was in, I became a paramedic. Um, and I'll, every time I got deployed to a new location, I either volunteered or worked as an EMS, fire rescue, search rescue, or something of, of that source until I retired in 2004. Um, as a paramedic coming out of the Marines and met up with uh, DMI. And I think that's where where we crossed paths first time and uh, worked with uh, DMI and the great uh, other instructors that, you know, I was blessed uh, to get uh, under their wing coming out as a a kind of a baby medic, I guess, since (laughs) Marine Corps doesn't have. And then uh, did that for a long time and then got into contracting, um, teaching, operational, um, medical, firearms and all that. And then uh, within the last five years, I was picked up as a mentor in Kenya, working with uh, Department of State Anti-Terrorism Assistance Program. And just want to say full disclosures that, you know, this is just a my views and opinions and not representation of anybody, anything or anybody. So I have to ask as a, as a Marine, how in the world did you get paramedic rating? How did you get even a job as a medic in the Marine? Cause the Marines are so proud of everyone's infantry. There's no medic. Uh, how, how did you manage that? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we have our, uh, you know, I was in reconnaissance. So we have our SART corpsmen who are phenomenal uh, providers um, but you know, the Marines don't, we don't have an, an MOS for medical, but, um, as a new in the career, uh, we were deployed on operation, got, uh, fast roped in on top of a mountain. And one of our, uh, one of the teammates, uh, pretty messed, messed up his leg pretty good. I mean, it wasn't, uh, he, he still had a good career, but, um, you know, none of us, we all kind of stood around and just looked at each other like, well, what do we do now? Uh, so when I came back from that, I just went to my uh, SAR corpsman and said, hey, you know, teach me some medicine. And then from there, I kind of got the itch and I'm the guy who, you know, fell in love with it and made it a uh, made it a career, a lifelong passion outside of the Marine Corps. And then the the blessings as I got promoted up in rank and got more and more into, you know, ACLS PALS, uh, ratings, uh, intermediate and all that, I was able to teach at hospitals. Uh, on the posts I was assigned to, I worked out in EMS, and then I was able to bring some of those skill sets back to my brother Marines, and we kind of did in-house training where I was able to get some of them who were interested in medicine uh, to go to EMT school. And then, uh, you know, i just been doing it, uh, actually retired uh, out of the Marine Corps to work uh, in the EMS or search and rescue, or, you know, got hooked up with DMI. So, I mean, that's, that's kind of how it got there. <laughs> so as on, on active duty, you managed to get through ENT school and paramedic school on your own time. Yes. That's so, uh, when I went through EMT school it was in, uh, the late eighties, the, the Navy actually held it 
I was at Camp Lejeune and the Navy held, it was a three week fire hose course that, uh, kind of begged, begged to go to and was finally sent and became a national registered EMT in then North Carolina. And that's when I started first working EMS. And then, uh, through my career, anytime there was a school or any training, uh, that's my first time through DMI as I, I was an active duty Marine. I, I was like probably, I think the, one of the only Marines that went through, um, and I just, any medical, anything I could get, get away from on weekends, nights, take leave. I did it. And then during paramedic uh, school, I was actually running the amphibious reconnaissance course. So I did that about 50, 60 hours a week and then did night paramedic wow. school weekends and then took time off to uh, do my clinicals, my rotations. And I was an FTO at one of the local in Virginia Beach EMS stations so I also had to do, I was an FTO, so I had to do my uh, 48 minimum hours required to do that. So for the, the two years of my schooling, uh, I was pretty busy. But uh, I tell you, I mean, it was tough then, but it was one of the best things I could have done. And I, I would do it again looking back and recommend it to anybody who's considering. Nice. So it took two years to go through paramedic. Who did you go through? What, what program was it? It was uh, Gulf Coast Community College. Nice. So, um, yeah, it was a uh, community college. I got enrolled cause I was running EMS. So uh, I was able to get in and nice thing is, is as an actor duty in the Marine, uh, the Marine Corps paid for the expenses. So that was a nice plus and, uh, working in the same town and, uh, as you run EMS and FTO benefited me too, because all my training officers through paramedic, I, I basically ran with them. And when I worked in the hospitals, those are the people I seen running calls. So it was an easy, easier transition for me as an EMS person than uh, some of my yellow classmates who came in cold. And then the, the base hospital would let you work in the A&E department? Yeah. So um, I worked out in town most of the time. And then on the different bases that I worked, I would go and just introduce myself, show them my credentials, um, meet with them. And then they would go, sure, come on in and work if you want. Um, on Camp Lejeune at the time, I don't know if they do it anymore, but if you were uh, an EMT, it didn't matter if you're Navy, Marine, civilian, anything, and you worked on post, uh, you can run uh, in the ambulances because uh, they were shorthanded. So they would accept anybody to do that. And then I also worked out in town. So, you know, I was very fortunate and going through paramedic, there was only about four of us that were military at the time. And we were the only ones allowed on uh, to the Navy hospital, which seen, you know, that's where we got a lot of kids and uh, um, children and female patients nice. um, just working at the Navy uh, hospital and then working in, uh, in, Norfolk is a level one trauma center. So it was pretty uh, eye-opening. That's pretty impressive. You, you don't see a lot of active duty people being able to get a paramedic course whilst being on, on active duty and being in, well, as yourself, with, with a soft background working in soft units. It's, we just don't have that much time. And I'm impressed, Brian, that you were able to do that. Ah, well, thank you. It was, uh, it was labor of love, I guess. <laughs> So you, you got out and then went to work with Deployment Medicine International. So how did you, all of us who worked at DMI had weird ways of, of getting exposure into it, get, getting hired. So what was your story, Brian? How did you get hired on by DMI? So um, 
after, I want to say right during, or I think it might have been during um, paramedic school or before I went to or after, but uh, I actually convinced my command to let me go to a class as a student. And uh, going through it, one of the only Marines, again, you know, definitely only Marine in the class, yeah. but uh, very few of us came went through uh, at that time, um, you know, afterwards when we were working and doing all the TCCCs and stuff for pre-deployment, you know, you've seen a lot more. But at the time when I went through, I was like one of the only Marines and uh, met up with, with Doc Hagman and, you know, kind of kept in touch. And I actually, after I retired, I moved back to Florida and I was just waiting for my Florida paramedic cert and I was going to work uh, as a paramedic in Okaloosa County and then a firefighter in Bay County because um, I was doing, I had like 25 years of fire experience. So uh, John kind of reached out to me and said, hey, you know, if I fly out here to Washington, Gig Harbor, uh, and we have a discussion, would you be interested? And I said, sure. And then, you know, the rest is history. So, um Nice. You know, it was a good move for me. I got a lot of exposure. I got a lot of training. Like I, like I said, I met you. I met a lot of, you know, uh, other individuals that were phenomenal providers of all levels. And it really made me a better, better medic. So I, I appreciate you and everybody has supported me there in those years. I look back on DMI with, with fond memories and, and uh, drinking from the fire hose of austere medicine and uh, just the, the, the people, the quality of instructors uh, coming through, I, I learned every every OEMS. I, I learned from 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 Hagman as well as from yourselves. It was fantastic, and and you were you were doing OEMS. What other courses were you doing? Were you doing some of the the BLS level as well? Yeah, so uh, I became a, you know an instructor trainer for American Heart, and um, it was Ashy. Now it's uh, HSI, and so my my company is a training center. So I continued doing that and working in town and working with EMS, just uh, kind of giving back to the community, but also, you know, just that passion of quality instruction, or at least hopefully giving quality instruction. And, you know, what I learned, pass that on to others. And, uh, you know, maybe uh, I know there's some instances I've been fortunate that guys came or women came back and said, hey, you never me? And I'd be like, oh, I'm sorry, I really don't. And they'd give me the history. I go, oh, okay, okay, yeah, I got it. And they go, you know what you taught us, you know, even from DMI days, you know, the, the back the back history and the, the guys coming back from the after actions and going, man, you saved this guy's life and you were able to help me. It just, you know, that's hmm. the rewarding of, of the part. We don't, you know, as medics, we don't get paid a lot. And we don't get a lot of recognition. But uh, just being able to help somebody else in the time of need is sometimes all you all you need so what did you do when we all transitioned out of dmi what what jobs were you on and how did you get into kenya now uh so i i, I did um as i kind of slowly backed out of dmi and just went from full to part-time and doing mostly the ltt labs uh i started working with a company um uh, the Marine Corps Police Academy, and I was overall in charge of all the medical training that we did, and it was it was basically BLS training um, and some other stuff, and became you know uh, firearms and OC and left lethal and all that, and still kept in the medical profession. In Washington State, I also worked with uh, Tacoma's uh, tactical team, 
and some of their tech meds and got really connected with their um, medical doctor that was on the team. He wasn't the med director for Tacoma, but he was the doctor on the team and also a a sheriff, which was unique to have a a medical doctor as a deputy sheriff. Mm. But, uh, and then uh, went over to um, special ops training group uh, as a civilian. And I did, um, I was the SME for uh, visit board sea ship or maritime ops and uh, designed a course uh, on request. It's called Limited Space Rescue. And it was uh, the, the Sark Corman came to me, and these guys are phenomenal. And they're like, hey, can we do something to learn and get our guys set up to be able to do limited space rescue with minimal ropes? And what we do down in, you know, on ships, what we do down in the, the wells of the ship and the black areas and where, you know, somebody could be hiding or somebody can get hurt. So that was fun. So we did that and started doing that. And I, I'm not sure if they still do that, but we did that for a couple, for um, probably four or five cycles of, of Muse that went through and then went over to um, MSOS, which is the Marine Special Ops Schoolhouse for MARSOC. And I started off as the uh, lead for the firearms, then became the project manager and started the clinic there. So they wanted 10 providers, paramedic levels, the same equivalency as SART Corman. So it was really fun. I got to set the clinic up, got to hire the, the providers, got a medical director um, that we worked with, uh, and then uh, did that, started the clinic, and that was pretty good. And then I went to O'Gara, did the same thing at the O'Gara Training Group, became the safety officer and started the clinic there in Virginia, got the medical director, doctors, nurses, dentists. And then... Um, through the ATA program, I just kind of traveled, did tech meds and a bunch of other stuff. And then this job came open. And uh, Kenya is a wonderful country. If nobody's been, you ought to schedule a, uh, a little trip here because it's amazing. And got in here and, and really kind of as soon as I hit hit the ground, I just reached out to some people online that had training companies and did PHGLS and EMS. And, you know, it's been almost five years now. And then... Um, they are just starting their Kenya Paramedic Association, and I'm on the board of directors as a uh, foreign foreign seat. Nice. And I've uh, been really involved in their progression of EMS and uh, helping them and just doing a lot of classes for them, and, and it's just been a great, uh, great evolution so far. What exactly are you, are you doing? You're, you're doing some Stop the Bleed. What, what courses are you running in Kenya? So uh, when I first came here, I was here just as an instructor and we did a big, uh, we did a program and then we did a big uh, FTX and we had, you know, as everybody does, injured, injured officers, injured civilians. And we, we did a TAC med course, which is a week long, five days. And it's kind of, it's kind of like a stop the bleed uh, plus um, type training. It's uh, based on TECC C guidelines, but uh, it's really kind of for non-medical providers, but uh, it's a good course and it, and it helps these guys and gets them into the mindset. So doing that, we realized that we did some great scenarios. Our providers, the guys were designated as medics, did a great job. And then when uh, the local, we had the local EMS showed up and the turnover was uh horrendous and the EMS didn't know who they were. Our guys didn't know who EMS was. And from that point on, we identified there needs to be a need to enhance the capabilities of these tactical teams. They don't have 
like, you know, in the army, in the U S you have your medics, 18 whiskeys, 18 Delta, same with the Marines. You have your Navy corpsmen, air force PJs, you know, so on and so forth. Navy have their, their corpsmen or their sealed corpsmen. These guys here didn't have anything. So what I did is I got here on deck and I just started working and developing more and more medical training and then came up with a, a, a advanced care provider course that we were going to run here. It was going to be four weeks. It was myself, another mentor, and then we had two local Kenyan surgeons that were going to run the course and then initiate the program to get medics within these tactical teams and then COVID hit us. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we all know what happened during COVID, nothing. So when I was at home, though, my residential program manager reached out to me and goes, hey, ATA is kind of interested and you know, counterterrorism. Can you send me the white papers? And so I wrote some white papers. This is why it's needed. And, you know, and this is what we have currently. And this is where we can get to now. And so they, they bought off on it and they, they call it an ATAC med and it's four weeks long. And so we're right now, as far as I know, the only country in this program that has run the courses. Hmm. Um, and it's been very successful. It's I'm, I'm, I'm going to kind of toot my horn is cause I'm an instructor trainer and a paramedic so I can keep their skill sets up and I can also update their information through the, you know, learning through science or me attending courses. And I bring that information back, but it's really worked out well. And, um, and now my tech, some of my tech medics and one of the unit, ATAC medics or uh, advanced care providers, they have been teaching not only the rest of their unit TAC med courses, the basic TAC meds, but they've reached out and other agencies have asked them to support them. So they've done just, I think last year alone, close to 500 individuals in a, in a TAC med course. Nice. So it's really reached out and that's our goal. And that's what I'm working on now is trying to push that program. We have another course this year and then we're going to have some mini courses. So my goal is, some of the programs I want to have per unit, you know, um, advanced care providers or ATAC meds. And then I've designed another program where I'm trying to set up kind of like a uh, combat lifesaver. So like if, if you think about how maybe, and, and I may be over speaking, but what I've just remember is, you know, like maybe you have a, an infantry unit where you have maybe some 18 with some advanced care providers, and then you have your combat lifesavers that support them. So maybe two or three really high skilled, and then you have, four or five within the platoon that are, you know, combat lifesavers, then everybody's trained in TAC med or stop to bleed. And that's what my goal is now is to start developing that program. And uh, I've got approvals, uh, you know, low, low ends on my side. So now we're just trying to figure out how to initiate it, um, timelines and setting it up. But uh, that's where we're going with in, in the, um, in the operational um paramilitary, military, and law enforcement side. And then on the civilian side, I teach all around. uh, I do um, Stop the Bleeds. I'm doing one actually tomorrow. Uh, I've been asked to do a joint effort with another country, and I go to uh, Lamu Island, and I've worked uh, last before I went home. I did uh, 40 doctors and nurses uh, in a BLS course, and I did uh, 40 community health care providers, which are providers that are, are scattered throughout these communities that have some medical training, but in times of need, outbreaks, they go to the hospital, they get 
refreshed in training. They get the meds and they go through these communities and vaccinations or basic care. So I was able to teach 40 of them and give them a first aid certification. And now I'm going back and working with the airport and more community health care providers um, next week. So nice. it's growing legs. So your ATAC med is, is like an EMT basic at the at a tactical level? It's, it's um, so, you know, the tech med and I, and, you know, you're probably, uh, or I like to say I'm like you is I like the science behind, why are we doing this? You know, why are we putting a tourniquet on? Why is our blood pressure spiking? Why is this going on? So the tech med is mostly, again, about three and a half day fire hose on how to stop the bleed. And then it's just, you know, the phases of care. And I thought, you know, this is good. Everybody can use it, but we need people to understand why they're doing things because we've had, you know, several attacks in Kenya, Westgate, Doucet, Embassy, Garissa, um, things are happening. And then like anywhere, like mass casualties or any other attacks in the, in the world, you know, it could be days, hours, days um, before anybody can get in and, and start treating people. Mm. And you have people that are, you know, diabetics, people in cardiac, maybe somebody's, you know, pregnant, whatever the case is. So, they are probably a basic plus. Um, they're 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 pretty close to uh, intermediate. If you look at you know the older standards, the intermediate standards are changing, but it lower because they can do um, airways. They do um, eye gels and kings, and they can do IVs. They do limited pharmacology. They do glucose. Um, nice. You know, and then more splinting, more assessment protocols, more extrication. So we give them the skills so, you know, they can take charge, kind of sit back and then kind of run the scene or take charge. And, uh, again, it's been successful. We've had some uh, lives saved from those guys and, um, on, they've been out on missions and actually gotten some ticks and saved some lives. So, uh, it's working. So and even in the civilian side, um, somebody got stabbed and guy remembered the class he went through. I teach at some of the ranges around here, stop the bleeds, yeah, for the range officers and for the civilians that just want to have an idea in case something happens. And one guy got stabbed. There are out of the, you know, in another county guy got stabbed and another guy stopped his bleeding, took him to the hospital and he survived. So nice. That's impressive. Yeah. So are you teaching prolonged field care as well at the, for those EMTs? So what I want to do, we have a training center down in Lake Navasha. It's massive. Um, it's ideal for prolonged field care. I've had some interest from other organizations to do that. Um, so what uh, what I want to do is I want to do I want to start kind of looking at two other courses. One is a um, kind of a, a a medical course for the medics to do planning. So not like mission, but, you know, planning medical medical phases. You're at phase line red. This is where you can go. Looking at hospitals, what's their level of care, if they're mobile, if they're foot. So a planning phase for the medical providers so they can brief back the senior officers. And then I would like to do a prolong because some of our border officers that have done this course are in the middle of nowhere. And it's literally, even in, in town, it could be two hours in some of the areas that we work Um two to three hours before you get any can get to them or get them to a, uh, a definitive care uh, facility. So these guys are working or with them for a long time. Mm. So prolonged field care. Now I got to keep it kind of down because we're limited resources. Um, what we're doing is we're taking individuals and they've all done a great job, but we're taking individuals that have really no 
no medical, kind of like me as a Marine, nothing medical and then turning them into medics. So, you know, I got to I got to kind of take it slow, uh, make sure they understand uh, they're picking it up pretty good. And now as they've been in it more, I can push them a little bit harder. Hmm. But the first initial course is we just got to kind of, you know, if you remember when you first stepped into your very first medical class and maybe you didn't have any, you know, I didn't. And I'm like, wow, this is okay. And uh, so that's what we're kind of getting. So prolonged field care would be a lot of basic skills, some advanced, because, you know, if we if we put a tube in somebody, now we got to really control them, maybe for hours. Um, and we really limited on pharmacology. If, mm. um, you know, if we start CPR, same thing. You know, we can run lines, we can do glucose checks, but I want to come up with a plan or program that these guys can do. We don't have any rotary uh, rescue here. We have, it's all fixed wing, so you have to get somewhere to a landing strip before you can medevac them out, mm. or you have to drive them out or carry them out. So that makes it challenging. But I kind of think it's kind of fun to get back to the basics. You know, sometimes we, as, as we get more and more into medicine and start learning and all the, all the, all the Gucci stuff that we get, you know, and when you go to Soma, you see all the bells and whistles and, and then you get out here and, you know, in the, in the, Africa or any of these, some of these other countries probably where you've worked and you just don't have that. It's kind of, you know, you got to figure it out. Yeah. It, it's a mindset. The, the basics are what makes a difference. And and as you know, in, in, in your SF background, it's the basics done well is the only thing that separates us from, from everyone else, I think. And PFC is the basics and nursing care is nursing care regardless. And yeah, it, it's fun to walk around the SOMA exhibition and see all the wazoo. It's, oh yeah, 100, 150 grand. You can get this brilliant no i'll never have it and it's gonna be worthless to me if i do have it so because we're out in the middle of nowhere and uh, so yeah the basics is what's going to make a difference yeah 100 percent. and also here you know resupplying so um there's like one one place here that can you can actually buy ifax and and actual operational let's call it operational medical kit um so you can buy hospital beds and stuff like that. But, you know, again, we're not going to put that in our, our vehicle or carry it on our back. So uh, that's the other thing. You know, we do um, – I know a lot of people have, you know, likes and dislikes about improvisation and, you know, like improvised tourniquet or improvised litter or improvised this. I You know, I tell you, it that's the way we have to do things here. Mm. And to get your mind uh, creative, to you know, to go, all right, what can I use? Look around. Um What's in your backpack? What's in your, you know, what's on the ground and come up with stuff to make it work is, is also pretty, pretty, for me, it's kind of fun. I, I have a big background in search and rescue. So, um, you know, with being out in the middle of nowhere with nothing except what's on your back. <laughs> yeah. So are you printing your tourniquets or where, where are you getting your tourniquet resupply from? So right now with the program I'm doing, I'm very fortunate, uh, again, and I have, um, my my immediate boss is 100% supportive uh, and actually you know his the next level too is very supportive uh, but we have so so the programs that I work the the paramilitary law enforcement military I get supplies through our program mm. um, the other programs we're working I work with another country so they supply they have their money bucket that we don't look, we don't touch. I don't touch. And then I come up with just improvisation. So, I mean, um, we're trying to get the word out. We're trying to set up standards here. Uh, I, 
the company that does sell, I've kind of linked up with him. So I'm trying to push people to him uh, and say, hey, you know, if you need these things, I'll show you how to use them. Uh, but you have to purchase them. Your agency or whatever will have to purchase them from there if you're outside of my immediate program. The Ukrainians have perfected the printed tourniquet and have good research showing that it's up to par. Is that would that be an option for you or for for the people you're you're working with? It would, but you know, immediate. The biggest thing is immediate cost of how much to set up. And that's, you know, I mean, we, we look at it. I look at things as, all right, if I have to spend a, a $1,000 now, but it's going to last me for 100 years, then it's worth it. But when you're a fixed budget, you know, it's it's a bit challenging where, where's my cost? So here, counties support the pre-hospital so and hospital basis, so the hospital. So uh, counties have, they get a budget, um and I'll just keep it at a rough, but they get a budget and then they take, sit down and they go, all right, we got to put this much money in pre-hospital, this much money at the hospital, this much money in the community health care providers, mm-hmm. you know, the budget for the medical side. So they look at that and, they, you know, I've talked to them and I, I, I know this because they've talked to me about, hey, how can I get this? And they go, how much does it cost? And I look it up and they go, oh, um, so that would be great if we can get those here because that would, you know, long run would save save so much money but the initial cost might be the scare scare factor (laughs) yeah well there's plenty of options less than a thousand but it's it's a different mind frame that people need to to get used to and it's it's still new yeah you know and and you know we're the medical here has been going on they're they're really starting to come around they 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 have a they have an ems system um, they're, they're having a, to work now on developing scope of practices and curriculum for EMTs and paramedic level and who's approving factors. And like in the U.S., we have the national registry. So they're trying to establish something like that here. So with all that, but it, it's starting to grow legs and it's starting to take up interest. And that's a plus for all of us because, uh, I've, I've been lucky to link up with some, uh, um, providers here, Kenyans, at the hospital level, doctors, some nurses, and some paramedic level, and some EMTs that are just a wealth of knowledge. And so um, we're all kind of pushing those, you know, hey, we should, we should get into this training, we should get into this equipment, and what can we do to help you? And, you know, so. The new EMS system in Kenya, is, are they adopting the U.S. system, or are they doing a degree paramedic? They're doing a degree, so they're nice. they're more of the common they're more of a commonwealth. So they're looking. They just they just had a meeting, um, the paramedic association with the UK's paramedic association, and so they're they've talked to they have they you know they talked to the national registry. So they are not just they're you know looking at the U.S. policies. They've looked at the Australian, the UK, um, South Africa, even. Um, so they're kind of just trying to put everything together, but I think they're going to lean more towards the UK route where it's nice. a two year degree and then the different levels of paramedic, uh, like the UK has, I think even Canada kind of follows that a little bit too. They do. Yeah. The, the PCP in Canada is still a BLS level, even though it's primary care paramedic, uh, it's not until you get your ACP that you're an ALS med in Ireland as well. We have our paramedics who are degree paramedics that can't cannulate and it, it kind of makes me a bit miffed uh, that you have to get a master's level advanced paramedic rating before you can do cardiac drugs and cannulate. But um, it's Ireland. We're stuck in the mud a bit. 
<laughs> yeah, there's a lot, you know, I mean, and then you have the other side where people are doing probably what they shouldn't be doing. You know, they're out of their scope. Mm. Uh, but, uh, you know, like I said here, it's so rural. Uh, you know, I, a lot of EMTs I work with, they probably have three or four bursts under their, under their belt um, just because. Mm. Uh, so they may be with these patients for a very long time in some of these rural areas. So you are doing a lot of T-Tri-C, you're doing a lot of T-E-C-C and Stop the Bleed. What improvements are you seeing in your students when you compare what they've done or, or how they are able to provide this care before your course compared to after your two-day or three-day Stop the Bleed course or T-E-C-C course? What, what improvements are you seeing in your outcomes? Uh, so... You know, like I said, a lot of these programs, you know, when they go through their initial training, kind of like if you want to call it, lack of a better word, boot camp, um, it was like me when I went through the Marine Corps boot camp. I think we got four hours of medical training, and then that was all we got. So mm -hmm. they get very limited, and we're I'm trying to work with their academy and set up some. Uh, I think we're going to bring some of their instructors into our next advanced care provider course and start running a more advanced care for them. So – I've been for, I've had uh, senior officers come to me after the training and I do sometimes, uh, you know, stop the bleeds two to three hours, uh, IFAX, eight hour day, TCCC, TCCC can be uh, two to three days, PHTLS. And I'm trying, I'm working on now is um, uh, ITLS uh, program, but they've come to me and said, you know, if I would have known this X, X amount of time ago, I could have probably saved X amount of my officers. Wow. Or I could have had my officers come through this training and we could have saved uh, or we could have survived some. And like I said, my, my, uh, one of my units, the medics and the guys who've been trained by the medics and myself and, uh, you know, the American teams that come over have saved lives. So the outcome has been really, really well received. You know, we, I don't get a lot of, cause I tell them that something happens, send me eat, you know, after action so I can keep data on it. But, you know, I, I hear a lot of word from mouth, but it has definitely increased their knowledge when they come back. You know, I've been asked to go back to other units uh, and do something again with them. Uh, multiple. Um, there's a EMS agency here. I probably ran nine stop the bleed courses for the agency. Uh, so, uh, and a lot of it too, you know, I just, again, on science and what we, what we learn in the books and, you know, read online and listen to podcasts. Um, they're like, wow, we didn't know that. Or, oh, that's new. You know, I just did a BLS class and they were still on the 15 and two compression ratio, you know, and I'm like, all right, let's, mm. let's update your skill set. So, you know, based on the science, not based on Brian, um, it's based on the science that, you know, is out there and, and I can pull it up for you. And so the outcome has been really favorable and they're um, learning. The learning curve has been uh, really good on, Oh, wow, if I would have known that, you know, oh, wow, the, the light bulb starting to flicker on top. Um, and that's always that's always beneficial for anybody who does any kind of training of any any program. Indeed. Have you considered publishing, Brian? You've got a lot of data here that you could do a pre-post Delphi type study or a, a just a, a, a questionnaire before and after that you could publish as uh, this is the course we're running for this audience and these are the improvements that we're having, it's, it's kind of an easy one to write. 
Yeah, I you know actually when I was just back in the states, I came up with a uh, so now I have um and you know it's not everybody here has computers or access. Not everybody here has emails. Not everybody here has smartphones. So, um, so we're trying to make it a way that's simple that anybody can access the program. So I've just came up with a way that they can just use you know either a QR code or whatever, or they can somehow go to a, a a library in the, in the hood, in the area and, um, get on and find this. And I'm trying to start again at, and I am starting to collect some data. And like I said, I, I asked for after actions and, you know, a lot of times it's after the fact or word of mouth or somebody go, Oh, I haven't seen you. Cause they, you know, they deploy so much or they're gone or they're back home at their villages for, uh, you know, they take like a month long of leave and they come back and go, I didn't know if I told you this. And I'm like, okay, so trying to collect that because it helps me sell the program too. Mm, definitely. It gets funding possibly. You know, and that's why I like, you know, talking to you and, and getting on LinkedIn and some of these other blogs and stuff, you know, I like to see what's out there and I may post something and go, what do you guys think? Because, you know, I just like you, you, you're in the same business, you know, Hey, we tried this, you know, some of the stuff that you're using, I've went out and looked at and probably purchased you know, mm. and, um, and some other, other places I've looked at and they go, Hey, this has worked for me and this is how I use it. And I'm like, Oh, let me try it out here and, and do a test run. And so, uh, and so now I have a friend who just gave me, um, uh, a, a satellite, a portable satellite, and we're going to try to run and have my medics go out and try to use that to send back, um, like a PCP report, or a PCR report. Nice. And see how we can do that with these with these portable satellites, and see if that can maybe support us in some way. So I'm I'm gonna start doing that once I get back from uh, Lamu. So I'm I'm curious, Brian. You said you are implementing some of the kit that I've been researching and and publishing on. What have you purchased and what have you used? So I think it was the handheld ECG. I think nice. I asked you about, and uh, yeah. yeah, so I have that here with me. You know, so and it's come in handy because you know. One of the hospitals that I, I, I frequently I've or I've visited and they asked me to do an assessment on, they had two ECG machines and only one had paper. So, <laughs> um, you know, wow. so, I mean, we're, you know, some of the places, you know, the U.S. were very, I, I go back home like you guys, you may have a bad day in EMS, but you're blessed. <laughs> mm. um, you know, so. Uh, so something like that, I think there's some other, I'm trying to think of some of the other, but I, you know, if I've asked you like, Hey, what about this? And I think AED, you, you put out something to me about an AED and you know, yeah. I researched that because, you know, carrying something like that when they're doing uh, protective details or something is always beneficial. You know, right yeah. now they have the big, huge Phillips or life pack, you know what I mean? So it's not really operational friendly. Nice. Yeah, that's the the cell AED is what I carry. Yeah. So I mean stuff like that I've I've researched and I've looked at, you know, and I, I either purchased and brought it here and we tried it out and say, Hey, you know, this could benefit and I write nice. a little white paper, send it up my side and then, you know, either it, it takes or it doesn't, but trying to get the information out. Brilliant. I love hearing that. I, I love hearing about better options for the osteomedic and being ha- having that concept tested out. And then I really appreciate that, Brian. Yeah. So I have, I have a final question for yourself. Sure. Uh, you are now the Minister of Health in Kenya. What improvements do you implement for the EMS as well as uh, the police and tactical medicine? 
So for the, the, the civilian EMS side, the improvements I would do, if I, if I had a magic wand and for one day I was in charge, um, I would look at um, who's teaching pre-hospital EMT. They don't have intermediate, so EMT and paramedic level courses. Um, what's their credentials? Get them credentialed in some form, either through like the UK fashion, US fashion, anywhere. Um, get a get a scope of practice written. Get a um, you know get our uh, protocols written, medical direction. And then go through and get everybody, you know, current to standards and make sure and what's your pre what's your pre hospital standards going to be, what's your scope of practice, what's your re regulations, protocols. So I would start doing that um, really hard and heavy. And, and then also look at because I got asked by AMREF University if I would help them look at starting a, a pre hospital program. And I'm all about it, you know, if I can help. But I had told them one of the things I said, they go, what would you do kind of like you did? What would you do to start us off? And I said, well, we'd have to get curriculum, but then we'd have to look at who's going to teach the curriculum. And, you know, hospital based aren't always the best to teach pre-hospital. And so we got to look at who's current, or who's certified or who could be capable of teaching pre-hospital. And then for the law enforcement, police, military, uh, wildlife, all those guys is that what I'm trying to do is I'd implement um when they get through with basic boot camp uh, as as their pre course, and I call it boot camp, but it's their their initial phase of training. Uh, you know, they they then go do whatever specific training uh, they may be assigned to, and here they'll go to a clinician, so they'll become clinicians. So they'll ha they have a medical program, but those clinicians and they do a good job. Um, working clinics. And so when now we have a deploying unit, you know, it'd be like a, a, a ranger battalion uh, in, the, in the U.S. having to go to the local hospital and grabbing a clinician out of the local ER and go, I need you to be my medic. You know, it's just it, he would mm -hmm. probably be he or she would be a good medic, but the liability of being operational. So what I would like to do is now you have two options. You can go the clinical route and be in a clinic, or you can go the operational route and be still a clinician, but you're an operational clinician. So you've been through your basic phase of training. You've been through your second phase of training, which is your tactics, whatever the case may be. And now you're a clinician and now you'll be absorbed into the unit. And I've wrote a white paper on it, It'd be three phases. So, you know, through the initial boot camp phase or initial training phase, they would get the, the, the stop the bleed or the the TAC med, basic to everybody learn how to put tourniquets on, occlusive dressings, phases of care, and everybody would get that. And then once they graduate, the next guy would go through what we're doing now, the four-week advanced care provider, and come out as like an EMT, EMT intermediate. And then as they go and they get more hours and we do more training and they get more clinician time and they work around, then we bring them back and we do another phase of care, and then that would be like their paramedic level uh, or, nice. you know, and then – they can go and that would also be uh, a specialty that they can maybe do and this and this is brian talking but you know if if i can make it work the kenyan authorities would go yeah now you have a specialty as a operational clinician and then you fall under that and maybe that would help them with promotion you know to be that specialist mm -hmm. and then um and then now you have guys when they deploy they always have somebody that's medically trained you know we're getting guys that are getting um we're having some problems on our eastern side of the country uh, at the border. And, uh, mm. 
you know, guys are going out there, they're, they're doing their job, but they don't have any medical providers. So if something happens, it's, you know, all right, load them up, let's yeah. go. And there's no, there's no initial care until they get to the, the clinic. And, you know, we all know in our, our lives, you know, the, there's a phases of care for a reason. So, <laughs> so those are the two things I would love to do. You know, if I could, if I could wave a wand and Brian was in charge for a day, that's what I would initiate. Uh, Brian Foy, it's been brilliant to chat with you, mate. We go way back and, and I, I'm really impressed with yeah. what you're doing on the ground in Kenya. And I, I always look forward to seeing you in, in Solmza each, each May. Yeah, I always try to do my scheduling to get back, and uh, and I appreciate what you do and all the, the the information and knowledge you've given me, and uh, all the other guys that I've worked with. And you know, if anybody has ideas, man, I'm an open book. Just bring it on because you know I love to hear what everybody else. Somebody might be doing the same thing that I'm trying to do in another country, and we mm. just don't know it. So, well, thanks for being a guest on our podcast, mate. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you very much for asking. This has been a presentation from the College of Remote and Offshore Medicine. If you would like to earn CPD credits for this podcast, you can join the Council of Members. Being a member of the college gives you free CPD credit, free access to our virtual field guide, and discounts on our e-learning courses. You can join the team on our college website at quorum.edu.mt.